0: there's such huge importance on availability and integrity in a way that you don't see in an industry like financial, because if data isn't available about a patient's allergies, you could end up giving the patient medication they're allergic to. If we don't have a guarantee of integrity of that data, you could end up prescribing the wrong dosage of a medication. That's not a worry you have necessarily in the financial industry, because at the end of the day, people are, are saving bank statements, and if they see something wrong, they can come back and dispute that. And there's different evidence that you provide. But the actual impact of of some of these mistakes in healthcare is lives, not
1: dollar amounts. From Cobalt headquarters in San Francisco, this is Humans of Infosec, a show about real people, their work, and its impact on the information security industry. My name is Caroline Wong, and I'd like to introduce today's guest, my friend and colleague, Joy Forsyth. Joy is the Director of Security at Alto Pharmacy. She has focused on helping the modern pharmacy startup build a better approach to healthcare while being respectful of patient security and privacy. After over a decade working on software security, security monitoring, and building enterprise security tools at Fortify Software, HP, and ArcSight, She also ran security at Mango Health. Joy studied computer science at MIT. Joy and I are both passionate about educating the next generation on smart ways to approach technology, security, and privacy. We're speaking together on a People Plus Security panel at the Shift AppSec Summit this February in San Francisco. Joy, welcome to our podcast. So happy to be here. So I want to talk to you about this People and Security talk series. What is your talk series all about? How did you come up with the idea? Um, and when did it start? And what's what's coming next in the series?
0: Well, it started from some conversations that I had with a good friend of mine, uh, Frederick Lee, he's on security at Gusto right now. And we talked about like, oh, there are all these meetups and talk series, including one that he had previously started over at Square called SquareOps. But the content tends to be really focused on like, hey, here's this cool new technology or let's talk about beyond core. How do you get there? Let's talk about the latest vulnerability and bugs that, we, that we've identified. And I think one thing that we aren't talking enough about in the security industry is the people that we are actually protecting um, or the people that are helping us protect them. Just really that people aspect of security that we neglect so often in, in favor of the technology. So this is something we were really excited about talking more about and getting to hear other people talk more about. So we decided we'd start a talk series of our own. And we started it in October of 2019. And I, by the time this comes out, well, I posted the second one. Uh, at my company, at Elphoe Pharmacy, with a focus on privacy, and we hope to do this roughly quarterly going forward, and really just find more ways to 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 refocus on people within the security industry.
1: Very cool. We will make sure to include a link to your upcoming series so that folks can follow it um, and keep in touch with that initiative. So, Joy, I want to talk to you about sort of young joy, and how you became interested in computers and in security in the first place. You studied computer science at MIT, which is kind of a big deal. How did you first become interested in computers?
0: I did not want to study computers. I actually went to MIT <laughs> studying pretty much anything but computer science. Um, That's I awesome. I'm <laughs> from a fairly technical family. My dad was a manufacturing engineer and brought home a a laptop back when laptops weren't really laptops, uh, many, many years ago, and was just so convinced that it was the future and that we needed to be exposed to this. And he bought a computer when I was about seven, which is a long time ago, and with an amount of money that was very, very significant for my family. And, you know, that was, that was what I grew up with. And I had an older brother who was 100% on board, was going to major in computer science from the first moment he. He decided, you know, like, I need to conversation about the college. Um, so I obviously was not going to do that because that was what my brother was going to do. And then I got to MIT and didn't quite know what I wanted to do, but took a lot of classes different places. And I ended up doing a seminar at the MIT Media Lab and got really interested in one research group there called Lifelong Kindergarten. And I thought that was what I wanted to do. I wanted to go. I don't know what they're doing. I want to go do that. And so I went and talked to them and said, hey, can I work for you? Because MIT is a very big undergraduate research program. And so I was trying to find an undergraduate research job. And they're like, we need somebody who knows how to code. Go take, go take one of the intro CS classes. And I was like, okay, I'll do that. And I did. And it turned out I really liked it. And they didn't hire me, by the way. I went back to the network. They wouldn't hire me. But I really liked computer science. And so that was what I majored in. Um, but I, I tried not to really hard. <laughs>
1: I love that. I love that you had a passion and a goal. And then in order to try and get there, they were like, well, you need to learn how to code. Um, And then how did you go from learning how to code and having that skill set? What brought you into security?
0: I think one thing for me was college is a journey for many people. Um, If we went back and did it again, we would do a very different thing. For me in particular, I went into college, I was interested in, I was interested in technology and science, but I thought math was boring because my, when I thought about math, I thought about calculus and I wasn't that I found it hard necessarily, but I just didn't, I didn't get excited about it. So, you know, I finished up all my math requirements and then somehow I ended up in computer science and then I was taking discrete math and I was like, oh, well, this math I like. Like I started to really like the conceptual side of math. And as I progressed in computer science, the parts that had that aspect, to it, the kind of more mathy, conceptual side, a lot of the theory classes. Um, and then I ended up because I was kind of taking classes in that area. I ended up in network and computer security, which was taught by Ron Reves at MIT, or at least it was when I was there. And I loved it. I thought it was interesting. I thought Reves was fascinating and did cool things. So of course I was like, I want to go work for work with him. You can say many things about MIT, but one of the things that's great about MIT is you can literally decide, I want to go work for this world-famous professor and schedule a meeting with him and say, hey, I would love to work with you. What does this take? And he was very into voting security at the time because I would graduate my undergrad in 2004, so it was a very topical thing. And I told him I was very passionate about voting security, which I mean, I thought it was interesting, but largely at the moment in time, I was just like, I, you think this is cool, therefore, I will think this is cool. But I ended up getting a research assistant position with him while I was doing my master's degree and doing my thesis on electronic voting and cryptography. And it was an intense learning experience in that I was not the greatest of graduate students and will never go back to that. But he had me do things like I actually went and worked in the polls and learned about the whole aspect of security, not just, you know, hey, okay, how do we encrypt this, but also, what are we trying to protect? What does it look like in the physical pulley location? And end-to-end, end, what does that mean? Um, and then I wrote up, you know, I did a little bit of a project that was actually kind of a pretty silly implementation of a potential encryption scheme. But getting the experience of, like, how this security thing, this very theoretical cryptography thing, could actually impact a real-life um, a part of my life that was um, just mesmerizing. I think it was one of those things that more so than a lot of my other experiences in computer science, I was like, this is exciting. This is what I want to do. But then I went and worked for two and a half years at Oracle as a database kernel developer because it's very easy when you are coming out of college to just be like, "I, I don't know what to do. Oh, okay, I can go to some campus recruiting thing and apply for a job and they'll offer me what seems like obscene amounts of money, so I'll do that. So for me, that was that was maybe not necessarily the best experience in terms of it wasn't what I wanted to do. But I also think it was a really valuable experience to be like, this isn't what I want to do. I don't want to just go be a developer somewhere. And I walked away from that, or I kind of got to the tail end of that job knowing I wanted to do something else and just saying, okay, I like that voting thing. I like that
1: security thing. How can I do that again? That is very cool. The idea of not quite knowing what you want to do at various different points in your career certainly resonates with me. And that's also something I've heard from many of our podcast guests. Joy, you have specific experience looking at voting security. Do you have an opinion that you'd like to share with our listeners with regards to the state of voting security today?
0: I mean, I definitely have an opinion. I think that we're in no way, shape, or form where we need to be. But I also think that people are unrealistic about the complexity of voting. Um, For Everything from at the end of the day, go sit in a poll and like, look at who's running that. It's probably someone in their 60s or 70s that's retired, um, often with minimal technology experience or maybe They'll have one person who knows more than others. It's basically a volunteer position because they does not get paid very much. So you have to be very realistic about the needs of the situation. What are the technology needs there? And the other part of it is even when you do account for the potential of fraud in the actual voting machines, I still think a bigger significance at the end of the day is everything up until the moment of voting, the registration process all of that is probably more vulnerable and, and even influencing people who are, that's a bigger issue. But that being said, I'm going to make a big plug for, um, Ben Adida actually was a PhD student while I was a master's. And one of the reasons I got through my, my master's thesis, he actually decided to do something about it. And he left, uh, his previous, you know, startup, job and is now running a voting nonprofit where they're trying to build open source voting machines. And I believe they're already actually in use in Montana, I think. Um, So it's a challenging problem. There's a lot of complexity. I think there's a lot of value in supporting people who are out there doing the work. And and
1: I plug Ben for that. Very cool. Yay, Ben. And you know what, that, something. I haven't really thought about it that way before. Um, Thank you so much for bringing that perspective to the podcast. Joy, one of the things that I'm learning about you is that you're really interested in sort of the end-to-end experience of people and looking at security problems through that lens. Can you tell me a little bit about what is it that you value in your career now? that may be different or have changed from when you were starting out in security? I think the funny thing is
0: how much less the technology matters now. When I first was looking for jobs, I was like, what language am I going to be writing code? in? you know, what is is the technology stack I'm interacting with? And honestly, the first job I took, the Oracle job, one of the most appealing parts to me was the idea of getting to think about data structures on a fundamental level. But when you get down to it, that's not necessarily how you solve a problem, thinking about the language and the data structures. The way you get to solving a problem, and what's interesting to me now, is working with people and how you you actually come to agreement on solutions. So my problem today might be understanding the privacy requirements that we're hearing from the legal side because of a new law called CCPA, and, and understanding those, interpreting them, and applying them to the technology in a way that the engineering team can understand and go build something. And that whole process of that that conversation from this very very legal language through to human language, back to technology language, that's that's what I'm interested in. Is making sure that we are having that conversation in a way that we actually represent all of the
1: parties. Cool. I assume. And correct me if I'm wrong, that in your work at Fortify and HP and ArcSight, you worked with a lot of different types of organizations trying to do security and use technology to solve security issues. Can you tell me a little bit about what was that landscape like? What were the drivers for these organizations that were trying to solve security problems? And how were they partnering with the companies that you were working at uh, to get that done?
0: I think I speak most to my experience with Forify just because that was where I spent a long time. Um, and I also kind of served different roles there. I started out as just a security researcher. I think six months of the job, they actually sent me on site to be a, an expert on Fortify and software security when six months prior to that I was neither of those things and one of the things that was really interesting to me is to see kind of the different motivations the different parties the developers wanted to build software and the person who brought us in wanted to make software more secure but it became a bit of a battle and that was always this weird uncomfortable situation to be in this which is I I think they should be able to build software and I think it should be secure software. I think everybody should get what they want, but somehow it's become less of a collaboration, more of a a, almost competition. And uh, it was a, it was a fight that we fought a lot. You know, I I had whole scripts about how we respond to, to questions from developers about false positives. But at the same time, I'm having conversations with the security teams about why we're missing particular issues and so I think that was one of the things for me is that constant tension was really hard, and we were constantly trying to solve it with technology. And unfortunately, it turns out to be pretty unsolvable with technology, I think. Um, and I say this as someone who genuinely still believes static analysis is this incredibly powerful thing that that should that we should be able to find a way to use. But I found typically isn't used in a in a helpful way. A lot of times, it, again, it becomes a checkbox or it becomes kind of the scene of a battle between two, two competing organizations. Um, I think when it's done well, I think when you actually get to see organizations where the security team is is trying to support the development team, you start to see security get involved in earlier aspects, the early you get involved, you know, the whole shift left thing. That's where we start to see some success because then you're using tools like static analysis more as... Catching the stragglers that got through rather than trying to identify all the problems at
1: that point in the process. Joy, when you and I were talking about preparing for today's podcast, one of the things we talked about is that you spent a lot of time in your career building a security product that was used by banks and insurance companies to protect themselves against fraud Today, you work in a totally different space. And for several years now, you've been working in the healthcare space. Can you tell me a little bit about sort of your observations on the financial sector and the approach to security and the healthcare sector? What does that look like to you?
0: I think one of the big differences I've seen is, and it actually goes back to some of the experiences i had when I worked on voting when I was in grad school which is when you start thinking about a threat model or how you build it, there are different threats and there are also different uh, values and parts. You know, a lot of people think about healthcare and they're like, oh, confidentiality is the most important part. If you lose my healthcare information, I can't change it. Like I can my credit card number. And so that's where people go first. And a lot of security people go there and they say, yes, confidentiality is the most important part. The honest truth is that that's not true. At the end of the day, There's such huge importance on availability and integrity in a way that you don't see in an industry like financial because if data isn't available about a patient's um, allergies, you could end up giving the patient medication they're allergic to. If we don't have a guarantee of integrity of that data, you could end up prescribing the wrong dosage of a medication. That's not a worry you have necessarily in the financial industry. Because at the end of the day, people are are saving bank statements, and if they see something wrong, they can come back and dispute that. And there's different evidence that you can provide. But the actual impact of, of some of these mistakes in healthcare is lives, not dollar amounts. So it's very, very different in terms of the incentives. And for me, those differences in incentives have actually been incredibly valuable because it also means you can have conversations with people where. They're not saying, okay, well, if we make this change, it's going to reduce fraud by this amount. That change is going to cost us more than reduction in fraud. So you know what? We're not going to make the change. Versus on the healthcare side, you're like, okay, well, you know, here's the potential risk to a patient. And imagine you that you're that patient. Is this an okay choice? And that's a conversation you can have. And it changes changes things a lot. And for me, because I, I get really, really passionate about privacy, for me, it's great. I really love the fact that that's the conversation I'm having. Very
1: cool. I actually am somewhat struck by this idea that integrity matters in a completely different way because if you get someone's allergy information wrong or you miss it, then that can have real life effects on that person's health and well-being. Um, you know, I think of myself going into a medical office and signing papers that say, you know, you're allowed to share my information with my spouse or you're not or whatever those documents are and, and, and being handed a piece of paper that says, here's our privacy policy. Um, but thinking about different allergens uh, as an example, um, all of a sudden it's like, whoa, that is for real a really big deal. Can you tell me a little bit about the set of patients that your current company serves. Uh, Who are these people um, and how do you think about the problems that Alto is solving for these folks and your role in protecting their security and their privacy?
0: I mean, first of all, our patients are all kinds of people. That's actually a really important thing for us is we leave no patient behind. It's actually like we have a values, a set of values that we talk about a lot. Both internally and externally, and one of them is leave no patient behind. And what we mean by that is that there are times where we will make a choice, potentially for us an expensive choice, to still support a patient who sits outside of kind of what might be our core demographic. Example: one of the big examples for us is that we our ideal situation. You know, the thing we the thing that is probably most efficient for us is a patient who downloads our app schedules their courier medication deliveries through the app, and if they have questions, actually uses our app to message securely our patient care team. That's great for us. It's super efficient. It's actually really efficient for those people in their day-to-day life because it's, it's the way they do everything. But we have patients who do not use mobile phones. We have patients who don't really have any internet presence. That's okay. We will talk to them on the phone. We'll have every interaction with them on the phone, and that is something we are 100% too committed to supporting because we know that some of our patients are going to fall into that. And we actually can support those patients better than most pharmacies can because we will deliver their meds. We have um, the ability to deliver their meds the same day. Um, we have two daily windows in most of our locations. So that flexibility for some of those patient populations, particularly some older and disabled patients within San Francisco, Getting to the pharmacy might be very difficult, we can actually make their life easier. And we can do it in a way that, that they're familiar with, which is just phone-based support. But we do, I one thing I would call out is that one of the things we're also very excited about is we we also have been building out the ability to support specific patient groups that might have higher needs. One thing that we've been very successful with is we support a lot of fertility patients. And that's a very, very complex medical reg- regimen. And it requires a lot of work on our part to do that in a way that lets them meet their goals, but it's really interesting
1: for us as well. So I
0: I would say we support everybody. We have all types of
1: patients. That's awesome. Thank you so much for sharing that with us. I'm actually, literally right now, I'm browsing the Alto Pharmacy website, um, and I'm reading uh, something that says, 50% 50% of prescriptions are never even picked up. That's a lot of healing that never has a chance to happen. Also, the pharmacy, yes, but our hopes are much larger. We want to get medicine to everyone who needs it in a way that makes each person feel truly cared for. Um, and at the same time, I'm actually comparing that against the financial institution that I do business with. And like on their website, on the front page, it says, get access to cash for your business. Depositing checks is now even easier. And so it's just It's just striking, you know, the difference between uh, sort of the, the missions of these different companies. So Joy, I understand that Alto Pharmacy is actually hiring a couple of security engineers. Can you tell me a little bit about what sorts of roles are you looking to fill right now?
0: Yeah, we actually have two open right now. One is a detection response engineer and one's an application security or software security engineer really looking for people who can support our product team as we grow and build out all of our products. That being said, I'm always open to talking to anyone who would like to come and work with me on this area at Alto. I think we're going to be hiring for a while and we're a growing team, so come talk to me if you have an idea about what you could do.
1: Awesome, awesome. Yeah, you know, I think The hiring climate in InfoSec is very interesting. I think that as a hiring manager, it can sometimes be hard to find really amazing candidates. And as an amazing candidate, it can sometimes be hard to find a role that you really love. Um, Joy, what kind of advice do you have for any security professional who's evaluating different job opportunities and trying to determine if a particular company or a particular role might be the right fit for them? One of
0: the big things for me as a security person right now is to find places that actually want to fix security, that actually want to get better. A lot of places want to spend money right now. They've been told by someone that they need to hire people. They need people to do security. Maybe they need to go get some certification. If that's all they're interested in doing, I don't know that I would want to work for them because you can show up at a place like that and find that no one actually wants to fix the things that need to get fixed. And you can't get people to help you fix things. And if you're trying to solve security by yourself, you're not gonna get very far. I when I came to Alto, I, I had a number of conversations with different companies. And there were a couple of companies that it was pretty clear from the conversations that they that, that was really the way they were approaching it. You know, one guy actually was like, oh, I need somebody who who can get into fights about security. And I was like, well, I don't want to get into fights about security. I want to go work someplace where people actually want to fix it. I had other people say, oh, I want you to come talk to someone in my company. They need to be convinced that they should hire security people. And I said, well, if, if they're not convinced yet, I don't think that's the place for me to work. So I think really looking to make sure when you go in and you're talking to people that you're having a conversation with a broad set of people. You shouldn't just be talking to one or two people. You should be talking to people across the organization you should also be hearing what they want help solving. I think an organization that's really ready to build up a security team is one that's going to tell you, "Oh, this is what I want to go do, but I don't know how to." I really appreciate going to a place where they're saying, "Hey, you have some expertise. I want you to come help me solve a problem. Not, I want you to solve all these problems. I want you to help me do it." And I think that's been the big thing for me that's that's resulted in finding in, in places that I actually get passionate about and like working at is places where they're looking to meet come in and be an expert. I think if you're earlier in your career, so maybe you aren't yet that expert, you you want a manager who is that expert. You want to work for someone who is that expert and is invested in mentoring. I think mentoring is really important to me. One one of the conversations that I always have with people working for me is what do you want to learn? You know, we we have things we need to do right now and some of them are not going to be the things you want to do but tell me which are the ones you are passionate about and I'll make sure those are the projects you work on. And if you don't know everything you need to to do that project, then I'm going to help you learn that so that you can do that project. Alongside it, you probably have to do some other projects that maybe are less exciting. But if I know what you're excited about, I want to make sure that's what you're doing.
1: I think that's excellent advice. When I think about the different teams that I've worked on throughout my career It's definitely a different feeling when I know that my team values my expertise and what I bring to the table and when I have management that considers what I really enjoy doing. Joy, we are coming to the end of our podcast recording time. Is there anything else that you'd like to share with our listeners? I think the one thing we didn't get to talk to, which
0: I just, I I think we should mention, which is, you know, we did say we were both passionate about teaching in the next generation and I just wanted to make a plug for your book and hopefully my opportunity in the future to work on any more content for children because I, I, that was one of the things I was really excited about when we started talking is your commitment to, to educating children and even young children about security because it's something I really get excited about too.
1: Thank you. Yes, I have an extremely wonderful picture in my memory of us sitting at lunch over sushi with Julie uh Julie Kurt uh and you're telling me about um sort of like a candy house and a threat modeling exercise for kids in terms of like how to protect the candy house how to protect the candy in the house and how to communicate what sometimes we think of as very complex ideas um in a simple way that totally make sense to a seven-year-old. And then at the same time, I very much appreciate the plug for our AppSec ABCs book, um, which is free and available for all. Um, So yeah, Joy, I really look forward to speaking with you on another People Plus Security panel in February um, and partnering with you in the future on all sorts of projects.
0: Great talking to you, Caroline, and thanks
1: again for having me. Our absolute pleasure. Thank you so much, Joy.
0: Humans of InfoSec is brought to you by Cobalt.io, a pen testing as a service company. Like what you hear? Subscribe, share, or leave a review wherever you enjoy podcasts. And don't forget to say hello. You can find us on Twitter at Humans of InfoSec. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.